Turn with me, if you would, to Revelation chapter 2. If you've been here the past several weeks, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and we've spent the last couple of weeks talking about the churches specifically in Revelation, the seven churches that John and, and Christ wrote these letters to. And just a brief recap, the church in Ephesus, they were the first church. They were the ones that lost their first love. Uh, they were doing things out of habit, mechanically, not out of excitement or love and anticipation. And the question we got from that is ask ourselves, are we doing our Christianity mechanically? Or do we really do it out of a love relationship with Christ? The church in Smyrna was next. They were the ones who were suffering intense persecution. They were commended for the endurance that they had. Jesus told them that suffering would continue, not to be afraid of it, not to be afraid of what's coming because it was going to get rough for them. They were to stand tall because in the end they knew they would be with Jesus. And the question we ask ourselves is, you know, we're not really suffering right now, but are we ready for it should it happen? Now, I thought about that for a second. I just want to take a brief aside here. Now, we've mentioned the vaccine and the masks and all that hoopla that's going on around it. I don't care one way or the other about it. But I want us to see what's happening in the world. After the rapture, the church is gone. The next thing that comes up will be the mark of the beast. And the mark is required for buying and selling and doing everything else. You look at that today, you think that's science fiction. But look what's happening right now. Using the vaccine as an example. What can't you do without the vaccine? You can't fly. You can't take a cruise. You can't go to most colleges. You can't go to most sporting events. Now we have the employer mandate, which means you can't work if you don't have the vaccine. There's a large rental company in Florida who owns a lot of apartment complexes. They're not going to rent to people without a vaccine. In New York City, restaurants and entertainment facilities, public transportation, all require the vaccine. Now, is the vaccine the mark? No, it's not the mark. But do you see how we're being conditioned into receiving it? Vaccine's not the mark. It doesn't matter to me one way or the other. But what we're seeing is a fore, foreknowledge of what is going to happen after the rapture. So it's no longer science fiction. And if you go back and you just study things that are in the news, you know, we microchip our peps, pets now. And you have all the information in there that if you lose your pet, it can get you back to your pet. It's available. So that stuff's being fulfilled right in front of our eyes. So all the stuff we're looking at now, it may seem like, uh, it's a thousand years from now. But it's happening. Stuff like that's happening right now. So we need to be ready because the rapture literally could happen in any moment. And if we're not ready for it, we're going to be left behind and we're going to have to either take the mark or not take the mark. If we're here after the rapture, I encourage people who have heard, the, heard God's word and not made a choice, I say, look, promise me this. If the rapture happens and you're still here, don't take the mark. Because if you take the mark, you're not going to heaven. There's no redemption for you. 
But if you don't take it, you will be martyred, which is better than being in hell. But this stuff's coming, and we want to be sure we just escape all of that. And the rapture tells us we are not going to be here for it. And these letters to churches are telling them, because at the end of the third chapter is when the rapture happens, the churches are gone, and he's telling them, be ready for the rapture. Because here's what's coming after the rapture. Then we came, we talked about the church in Pergamum. This was the church that was slowly beginning to let the ways of the world and society into the church. In other words, they were compromising. Now, there's a lot of talk sometimes about what's the world and what's not the world. Because there's a lot of things in the world that we use, right? We use air conditioning. We use a building. We use a lot of things we use in the world. What they're talking about is the morality of the world, allowing it to come into the church. And what was they were doing is they were compromising what they believed in order to keep their jobs, in order to buy food, in order to be not ostracized by the town. And again, the question we ask ourselves, are we letting the ways of the world lead me away from God? Do I let society's ways of thinking change what I think about what God has already said and has been plain about? Or am I compromising what I believe to keep myself safe. Jesus wants to be prepared for the rapture. And he's telling these churches, these are the things you've got to do to be ready. So today we're going to talk about the church in Thyatira. This was actually the longest letter that was written. The second longest was to the church in Laodicea. In fact, it's so long that I gave Brad a heart attack when I sent him 14 pages of notes when my average sermon is seven or eight. And so this probably, probably will be a two-parter. In fact, it will be because Brad's not ready for the second half. And, and you don't want to stay until the glaze comes over your eyes when we talk about this stuff. So Revelation chapter two, verse 18 says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, and your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you now are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I'll repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember last week we talked about if you have the New King James Version of the Bible, they put little headings above each church. 
Ephesus was the loveless church, and uh, next one, Smyrna, was the persecuted church. Uh, Pergamum was the compromising church. The heading that's in the New King James for this is the corrupt church. So let's see what's going on in the city that causes this church to be corrupt. So Thyatira was, a, was actually a very small city, not prominent like the other ones were. It was, however, a big commerce city. Mostly blue-collar workers working with the production of items such as wool and linen and bronze, etc. all these uh, blue-collar type works. And in that city, they had what they called guilds. How many have ever heard of a guild? It's kind of like a, I would call it a, like a union, if you knew what a union, you know, guild was, a union's the same thing. Each guild had its own patron deity. Every, you know, the iron worker guild had a deity and the steel worker guild had a guilty. And each of these guilds also had feasts and seasonal activities that were associated with worshiping that deity. So if you wanted to work in the town, you had to be a part of a guild. And if you're part of a guild, you had to actually worship the, whatever that deity was. So they had the same struggle that Pergamum had. They were struggling because in order to work, you had to be a part of this. And as a Christian, they knew they shouldn't be a part of it. So, but this, as opposed to last week's, this is coming from the inside. So look, we're going to look at the, this church verse by verse. The first part says to the angel of Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God. Now, a lot of times Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, right? And mostly in Revelation, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is the only time he refers to himself as the Son of God. Son of Man refers to his human nature. You know, he walked on the earth. He was a human like all of us were. He, he put his divine nature aside in order to live as a human. How many know that when God lived here, he did not operate as God? He worked as a man. Every, everything he did was human. He did not choose to use his God ability. He did not relinquish it. He simply chose not to use it. And he's reminding these, this church, unless, you know, so they don't forget about it, that not only is he, he is man, he is still fully God. And sometimes... The longer you're a Christian, we refer to Jesus as our brother, our friend, our savior. But do we remember that he still is totally God? And I, I mentioned a couple of sermons ago that you know, Jesus is not our buddy. He's still the God of the universe. He chooses to be our friend, he chooses to be our savior, but he's not your buddy that you hang around with and crack jokes with. He's still the God of the universe. And he's reminding this church that, yeah, I came as a human, but I'm also the, the God of the universe, so you need to listen to what I'm going to say. Because John had to deliver a message of severe rebuke and judgment to the church, which is evidenced by the next part, which is the continuation of verse 18. It says, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, if I, at first glance, you think, that's rough. <laughs> You know, it's not a, that's not an encouraging thing. And he wasn't. He was reminding them that his eyes are able to see through anything. No matter what we do, God is able to see through our pretense. God's able to see through what other people see. He is looking right into each one of us and can see our heart. Why blazing fire? So he can burn up the excuses we have. 
for the reasons that we do the things we do. How many of you ever tried to justify something that you know you shouldn't do, but you do it anyways? None of us here, but there are other people that do that. They will look at a situation and they will, as I've said before, people say they have a, me and God have an arrangement. And no, you don't. And he's able to burn through all the excuses we have for doing or not doing something. It's easy to get up on a Sunday morning and, oh, my back hurts. I'm going to stay home today. Well, maybe your back really hurts. Or maybe it's an excuse not to go. God's going to burn through the excuse so that we see that we're just making an excuse. He's able to see through our lives and bring judgment upon any sin in our lives that we may see. And sometimes you fool yourself into thinking that God doesn't see absolutely everything you do. And he sees every thought that's in your mind. Now that's scary. Everything that we do, everything the Bible says, what is done in the darkness will be exposed in the light. God sees everything that we do and he's reminding this church, I see everything you're doing. Good, bad, ugly, I see it all. And I'm gonna judge it unless you take care of it. The second part says, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And burnished simply means it's free from any contaminants. During Jesus' walk on earth, he was totally free from any sin. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet? He was washing them and, and Peter said, hey, well, wash all of me. Jesus said, I don't have to, I don't have to wash all of you, just gotta wash your feet. Peter was already forgiven. But the feet had the dust of the day on it, the sin of the day. And just by walking in the world, we accumulate sin just by being here. And Jesus washed his feet to get the sin of, the, of us being on earth cleansed. Jesus never let the world contaminate him like the world contaminates us every day. When we come to God for forgiveness, we're washing our feet before God, or God's washing our feet with forgiveness. And he wants them to understand he has the authority and power to bring judgment on them because he is the one who gets to say what's right and wrong. The folks that think they have an arrangement with God or God will have to forgive me on this one. I've heard that one before. No. God has, is the only one who is the ability to say what things are right, what things are wrong. Regardless of how we may feel about it, we may think, that's just wrong. But we don't get to make that determination. God is the one who makes that determination regardless of how you feel about it. If you have little kids and they want to do something and they feel like it's something that they should do and you as a parent know that they can't do it, you don't, it doesn't matter what they think, right? Because you tell them they can't do it. Can I go play in the street, Dad, at 5 o'clock at night? I think I'm going to be safe. I really feel it's going to be good. And you say, no. I'm sorry you feel that way, but you're not going out. Your feelings have no, no bearing on the fact that you're not going to play in the street. When God says things are right and wrong, it's regardless of how we feel about something. Verse 19 goes on and says, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Again, he's beginning the letter with the things they're doing right. It was a one-sentence thing. 
but they were doing some things right. They didn't lose their first love like Ephesus did. They were also facing persecution like Smyrna, and yet they continued to love and serve the Lord. Now notice the contrast. I I find this interesting. Ephesus was good at judging the false teachers, but they were bad at not having love for each other. This church was good at love, but was bad at correcting the false teachers. There has to be a balance of both. You have to be able to love and encourage people, and you also have to be able to challenge them and make sure that they're being taught right. Verse 19 says, I know your deeds. And these are simply things that they were doing in service to the Lord. And it seems like this church, that everyone in the church was involved in something. They were all active in doing. I wrote down here, they're not bench warmers in God's kingdom. And Jesus is saying that all ministry is as important as any other ministry. He says, all of, I know all of your deeds. I know everyone's involved. I know everyone's doing something. And everyone is as important as everyone else. And he's commending them for all of them participating in God's work in the church. He says, man, you're doing a great job. Everyone's involved. That's great. The more you have as a base, the more you can grow. It's, it's a great thing. And then he says to them, I know your love and faith. It's possible to do things for God but have no love while you do them. How many find yourself doing that? Or having no faith to trust that God will use you in that position. If you don't have love for each other, you don't have love for what you're doing, then then that means you have no evidence of faith that God is involved in that. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So when we do ministry, whatever that ministry is, we need to do it out of love for each other. And he says, this church, you're doing it out of love. You're doing a great job. Not only are you all involved, but you all have the right heart attitude about it. Then we come to the faith part of it. If we seek to do only the things that we think we can do in our own strength, where is faith? If everything I I do, I do because I think I can do it, and you do it, there's not really faith involved. Faith is when God calls you to do something that you really think you can't do, you're ill-equipped to do, and yet God calls you to do it, and then you step out and do it because you think God's gonna meet you there. Things that you know that you can't do in yourself you know God is going to have to do it through you. I was telling the teens this morning that when I was in high school and college, there's no, there no way that I was going to be a preacher. There's not, not, not a chance. Because I hated being in front of people. I didn't want to, I was nervous in front of people. And I remember in my high school play, I had one line to say. And every time that part would come up in the play, I would just run off stage and not say it which kind of messed up the whole rest of the play. And so at that point, I knew that it was, this was no possibility. And when I felt like I was called, I'm like, you know, God, there's no way. That's where it took faith. Okay, I know I can't do it. I know I'm really equipped to do it. You have to do it. And everybody who does any ministry is the same way. Because no one really thinks they're confident in what they're doing for God. Because you're doing something for God. For God. That's when God says, don't worry, I'll I'll do it through you. 
and you'll grow as you do it. And so these folks, God says, man, you love what you do, you love the people you're doing for, and you're all stepping out in faith, doing things that you didn't think you could do. I'm commending you for that. Do we do these as well? The things that we do in ministry for the Lord, do we do it out of love and faith? Because that's what God calls us to do. And trust me, when you do it out of faith and God meets you, nothing more exciting than seeing God work through you in someone else's life. I'm telling you, when you, when you do something or say something that really ministers to someone and they feel like God has spoken through, through you to them, man, that makes it all worthwhile. Because you realize the God of the universe chose you to do something through, to touch someone's life. And the person on the receiving end realizes that the God of the universe speaking to me. That something I needed to hear, something I needed to have someone tell me, God knew it and God made sure I heard it. That's amazing. Verse 19 goes on and says, your service and perseverance. The word service is diakonia in the Greek and that's where we get our term deacon from. It means ministry. And it also applies to various ministry offices. Apostles, prophets, church leaders. If you're a diakonia, it means you're a leader in the church. It's also used about talking, when it's talking about ministering in the gifts of the Spirit. When, when Dick prayed and we prayed today about let the Holy Spirit work through the gifts of the Spirit in the church, that's also diakonia. The person who's doing that is, is ministering to the church in service. It was also translated as relief. When Christians support the needy, they give aid and support. So the church was operating in love, it was operating in faith, and it was operating in service. They were doing everything that God called them to do. It was handling their affairs well, allowing the Holy Spirit to minister in each of the services. They were doing it right. Part of verse 19 says, and perseverance. Perseverance is almost always used in connection with suffering. And it's possible that this, like any other Pentecostal-style church, there's going to be hurts and suffering in the church. For a church to be balanced, not only has to be age-balanced, it has to be situation-balanced. What do I mean by that? There has to be people in the church that are that have gone through a trial and they are out of it and they are celebrating God bringing them out of the trial. Then there are people that are just starting the trial, that things are just starting to go wrong for them. And then there's people who are in the middle of it, in the deep of it. And 2 Corinthians 1 talks about all three of those being able to minister to each other. The person who's been through it and they're out of it, they can help the person that's in the deep of it. And the person who's in the deep of it can tell to the person who's just starting it, look, it's tough, I'm there, I can minister to you. They persevered through that and they were encouraging to each other and each one was ministering to another. So in all ways, this was a normal church, a good church. And he goes on in verse 19 and says, and now that you're doing more than you did at first, So this was a spiritually growing church, and because of that, areas of service were also growing. They were doing more than they did at first. 
A sign of spiritual growth in a church and in an individual is ask yourself, am I increasing in my service to God? Am I doing more than I did a year ago or five years ago? Now, it doesn't mean we do everything personally. Is my level of service increasing? Am I more responsible now than I was before? Am I doing something more substantive than I've done before? When I first got saved, my first area of ministry was sound booth. That's where I can do the least damage, so they put me in the sound booth. And, and of course, you know, I got all the blame, so get ready. Every time someone on the platform drops a microphone, they turn to the sound booth like they dropped the microphone, and it's not really their fault. But, so I was in there for a number of years, and then they asked me to assist in a teenage Sunday school class. Then they asked me to assist in an adult class. And they asked me to teach an adult class. It wasn't more in what I was doing. It was more in the substantive of what I was doing. And that's where it is with everyone. Your first ministry is not going to be teaching, probably. But it may be greeting. It may be ushering. It may be sound booth. It may be anything else. Nursery, downstairs. But then God calls you to something more. He pushes you a little bit further. And he's telling them, not only are you serving and you're persevering, you're doing more. You're bouncing. I, I remember I did a sermon once, and I used hymn books. And he, now, Harry's not here. Harry Portner was a bricklayer, and I used him as an example. How many have ever laid brick or block or anything like that? The base is always bigger than going up, right? To, to go up, you have to have a bigger base. And when they're talking about doing more, there has to be more things on the base in order for the building to go up. And just like any church, more ministries as a base enable the church to grow. The more ministries you have as a base, the more you're able to minister to more people. And so when he's talking about you're, you're doing more than you did to be first, they're doing more su substantive things, and they're also doing more in the way of ministry. We have Sunday school, we have youth, we have church, we have youth on Wednesday night, we have Bible study on Wednesday night. There's so much more that we could do if we had more of a base. We, we, I've talked to several people about doing a divorce recovery class. I've talked to several people about doing a, uh, a, a, you know, a, rec a health recovery class, that kind of thing. Uh, just so you know, we're able to bring Christ into every area of life, and the more we're able to do that, the more people we're able to reach. And that's what this church was doing, and that's what you know, I've been praying about for us. So God's putting something upon your heart that you feel. My pastor used to say, people would come to him and say, you know, you ought to start this group. And his response would be, you need to lead it. If you have the burden for it, you need to lead it. And that, that weeded out a lot of people sometimes. But it also, it's true. If you have a burden for a ministry, maybe God's calling you to lead that ministry. And you just need the covering of the church to get it going. So if you feel something like that in your spirit, let me know. Shameless plug. Matthew 25, 21, his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. What's the saying? If you want to 
get something done, hire a busy person. My, my wife's that busy person. She's always doing something in it. But if you want something done, she's the one to ask. If you ask me, maybe not. But the more you do in the faithful and the few things, God will call you to better and bigger things. Now verse 20 comes to the part where God has to kind of spank him a little bit. He says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. Now, if you remember the church in Pergamum, they were being influenced negatively from the world. This church was being negatively influenced from within the church. And a lot of times it's easier to judge the sin that we see outside the church. Now, we all know that's sin out there. But it's harder to see maybe when it's inside. Because maybe we know the people. Maybe we love the people. But... Maybe there's something that needs to be corrected with that person you love. And that's what Jesus is doing here. So we see that this person was an influential woman in the church. So she was well-known, may have been wealthy, we don't know, it doesn't say, but to be influential and a woman in her time, she would have to have means. And she gave herself the title of prophetess. Not bad. It wasn't the one that the church gave her. The Lord didn't give her that title. She simply calls herself a prophetess. Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, you know the story of Jezebel. Jezebel was a wicked wife of the king in the Old Testament Israel. And Jezebel tried to get people to worship Baal. She tried to get rid of the Jewish people. She was just wicked. And God had to basically knock her off a building and have the dogs eat her up. Now, I think some people say that she was calling herself Jezebel. I think more along the lines that God was calling her Jezebel. Because, you know, even in those times, Jezebel was not a name you want to have. So she's not calling herself Jezebel. God is indicating what type of a person she is. She is a Jezebel. And he was wanting everyone to know that this is what she was really like. She's not some misunderstood person. She's not someone who really wants to do right but not doing wrong. God says she is deliberately being wicked. She is a Jezebel. And in calling herself a prophetess, what she was doing was she was telling everyone, I'm a prophet, so everything I say is on the same level as what God is saying. And that's a bad place to be. Now, we've heard those videos, you know, that Tiff Shuttlesworth has done, and he is absolutely right in this one aspect, especially today with social media. How many have seen you know, Christians saying, I had this vision, or I had this dream, or whatever it might be? Those things never, never, ever are on the same level as God's word, right? Never. It may be right, it may be true, but it may, could be equally false. So I don't, whenever I hear that, I don't put a lot of stock in that. Uh, you know, that's great, you know, fine. I'm gonna stick with what I know is true. But this lady was saying that everything I'm saying, every vision, everything I say out of my mouth is equal weight with God. And that her teaching was above reproach or challenging. Whenever you meet someone who says their teaching is above reproach, you might wanna walk away from them. <laughs> 
We as believers are commanded to examine all that is being taught and all that is being preached, especially if it's against what God says, regardless of what title we have or are have been given. A lot of people walking around with the, with the word Rev next to their name. Then they're not, they're not called to do what they're doing. But the problem was, not only was she being wicked in what she was teaching, again, the church was not correcting her. They were letting her do it because she was influential. She calls herself a prophetess. So they were kind of letting her do her own thing. They didn't do anything about it. 1 Corinthians 14, 29 says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. 1 John 4, 1 says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out in the world. In Acts 17, now the Bereans, Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So what Luke was writing in Acts, he says, look, the great apostle Paul, he went in and taught them, but they didn't take his word for it. They examined the scriptures every day to make sure that what Paul was preaching was true. Now we look at that and think, man, they were questioning Paul? Paul? And the Bible says they were more noble because they did that. They made sure that what even Paul was saying was true. If they did it for Paul, we need to be sure that we examine what we're being taught from me or from anybody else. We are responsible to judge the things that are taught here. If we allow some false teaching to occur here, we will be judged or I will be judged. False teaching is like a cancer. You cannot coexist with it. When you have cancer, what do they do? First thing they try to do is cut it out of you, right? Next thing they do is try to kill it with radiation and chemotherapy. In the Old Testament, God equated evil, evil doctrine actually, with yeast. Matthew 16, 11, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeast, I'm not a baker, I burn everything, but I do know that yeast makes things rise, right? It gets through everything, it just permeates every aspect of it. And that's what, the, that's what sin is, that's what evil doctrine is. It gets in and permeates every aspect of the church. And in the Old Testament, whenever they had a, a feast or a Jewish holiday, not only did they not use yeast, they had to take all the yeast out of the house so it couldn't even be around them when they did it. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Don't you know that a little yeast works through a whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a, may be a new batch without yeast or without sin as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So he's challenging them. He's telling them, you got somebody in your church that's teaching stuff, not with a right motive, but they're doing it out of a wicked heart. It wasn't something they could play around with and, and try to get her back in. It was something they had to deal with at that moment. 
Now in my notes, I say, maybe stop here. But I put maybe there. But I, I will because I don't want it to, be, it'll be a lot longer than that. And I owe you guys because I'll let you out late the past few weeks. So I'm going to let you out early a little bit. So if I can leave you with one thing today, it's this. You can be doing everything right. Service, deeds, perseverance. But if you're not careful and ready to face it, the enemy will try to get into your life in a way that seems good by teaching you things that sound right, sound a little off, but it's designed to destroy the faith that you have. The church was being rebuked because they tolerated wrong teachings. They may have been afraid of her because she was prominent. May have been afraid of her to do anything because she was liked by everybody. The church did not want to face the repercussions that would probably happen if they took action against her. So that tells me today you got to be careful what you listen to. Got to be careful what you watch, what you read. Not everything on the air in print is godly and true. Not every preacher or teacher is God's man or woman. Let me leave you with this. Examine yourself, or no, examine everything you allow into your life as Christian teaching. How many of you listen to teachers on the radio? I do. How many of you read books, Christian, not fiction books, but Christian doctrine books? How many of you are able to separate the wheat and chaff from things you read? I'll give you an example. Now, I don't want to blow this from my wife because she's doing a Bible study on Mondays for the women. They're doing a book on the book of James. First chapter was great. And she's studying the second chapter and she reads some things to me out of the book. And she says, what do you think of this? And I heard it. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I said, read some more. I said, you know, I'm not sure I like that. And I'm not sure I agree with that. I said, you want to change books? So we can, you know, change them. I said, or you can do this. Ask the ladies what they thought about that when they read it. Did they get a check in their spirit? Did something seem off as they were reading this chapter? Hopefully, they all come in with the same thing like, I don't quite get this. And so I think she's doing that. She's going to come at it and try to explain away or try to explain what God's word says versus what the Bible says, what this book says. Perfect example of what started out great. Sounds good. But it could lead you off just a little bit. Now, how many of you use your GPS in your car, in your phone? I used to be a love knowing where to go. I used to know how to get to everywhere in Pittsburgh. I can get to anywhere. Now I've become lazy and a GPS guy. You know, how do I get to the next door house? GPS. 
But the problem with GPS, at least in my case, it may take you on a goat path or an alley to get you someplace that was a lot easier to get to by going on a main route. I was going to your house the very first time. It told me to get on Old Carlisle, get off here at the garage, get on Old Carlisle, get back on Carlisle and go further down and then make the ride at the light. So I did that, I'm like, this is stupid. Why'd they make me go off and then back on and then get off again? How easy, when you start following this thing, you come, become a slave to this stupid GPS, it takes you places you don't want to go. When you start studying things about God's word, if you're not careful, it could take you to places you don't want to go. And you can get there and not even realize that you're there. I had, we had this problem going through D.C. I don't know if anybody else has it. My GPS seems to just lose its mind in, in D.C., it, it, it always, it's always recalculating, always recalculating, you know. Get off, you know, get off five miles from now, you pass one exit, oh, recalculating. Like, I had to turn it off. And if you're not careful, if you study all these different things and you don't have a check in your spirit, it's gonna be taking you different places, all of them away from where you wanna be. It's great to read books about the Bible, I do it. You know, I read commentaries, I read things that, but I want to make sure I read this more. They asked Billy Graham, if you had to do something over again, what would you do? He said, well, I would read less books about the Bible and read more of the Bible. These are the last days, and I think the enemy is going to throw everything at you that sounds good, that you want to hear, that maybe ministers to you where you are, but is not true. We need to remember what God's word says. Last verse, I promise. 2 Timothy 4.3. I did have a line here, so it's part two. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away their ears from truth and turn aside to myths. The rapture is a silence event. It means nothing has to happen before the rapture happens. We're not waiting for any particular thing. No one's going to tell you when it is. It could happen like that. And the enemy is going to do everything he can to pull you away from that. It will sound good. It will sound like something you want to hear. It may even sound biblical. But we need to have the Holy Spirit give us that check to say, you know what? It's not right. And we need to be able to turn it off we need to turn it off like that Bible study for Anna if it was bad we'd have to stop it and just change it right there because it was at least in my opinion it was off left field a little bit we just need to be alert need to know what your Bible says need to be convinced of what your Bible says not because I'm telling you but because you've searched it out for yourself search it out you have a question? Stretch it out. Get a concordance and look at every word that you think that you want to talk about. Salvation. Look at salvation. I'll tell you every instance it's, it's used. A concordance is just every word in the Bible. It's like this thick. Actually, you can go online now. You can, you can do that online. 
Type in a, a phrase that you remember from your Bible and it'll tell you where it's at. John MacArthur calls that a concordance cripple. And I confess I'm a concordance cripple. I know what it says, I just can't remember where it is. You gotta remember it, you gotta know it. And the Bible says God will bring that back to you when you need it. But you have to have it in there first for him to do that. Would you stand as we close? I know Brad was nervous back there, right, buddy? I could just keep going. Would you bow your heads for a moment? Before we pray, I never want to assume that everybody who is in church is already a Christian, who already trusts Christ. Because churches are full of people who go but don't really know Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus on a personal level, you can't look back to a point in your life where you said, you know, yes, Jesus, I believe that you saved me from my sin, that I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. We should all have a, a date in our mind that we can look back to and say, yes, that was when I did that. And if you don't, the Bible says we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. The Bible says we're all sinners. And the Bible says none of us can get to heaven on our own merit. It can't be good enough. For it's by grace you're saved, not through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're all sinners in need of someone to pay that penalty for us. The Bible says that Jesus was the one who came and paid that debt for you and for me. He took the punishment that we should have had. He took all the guilt upon himself. And because of his sacrifice, God the judge now says, we're not guilty because someone has paid that for you. But the one thing the Bible does tell us is we have to accept that fact. It just doesn't come automatically. You have to come to a point in your life where you realize that. That Jesus, yes, I know. I know I'm a sinner. I could be a nice person, but I know I'm a sinner. And I realize that I need you to forgive me of my sin. The Bible says we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if you're here this morning, you've never really done that in your life. You've never really, the Bible says, repented of sin. In other words, turned away from the way you used to live. Turning unto a new way that God has called you to live. You've never done that. You've never really committed your life to Christ. And you're not sure. And you just have this doubt in your mind of whether you're going to make it to heaven or not. The Bible says these things are written that you may know you have eternal life. So Christians are confident of eternal life. And if you're not confident, the Bible says Jesus can give you that confidence. So if that's you, I want you to raise your hand right now. We're going to pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for just saving us, bringing us into your kingdom, Lord, filling us with your spirit, turning us away from the way we used to live into the way you've called us to live which we, once we experience it, we realize it's infinitely better. Lord, I pray for each one here as we study and we, we're here. We want to know your word. 
We want to live right. We want to do what you've called us to do. And I pray that you would fill each person here with your spirit. Give them that ability. Give them that call, the excitement, the expectation, all these things that God, you say you manifest in our lives. And I pray that each one of us would be excited about what you're doing. And we would see you working through us. That the God of the universe actually chooses to work through me. Who am I? The Bible says, who am I? Who is man that thou art mindful of him? Who am I, God, in the, in the world of five billion people? Who, who am I that you even care? But you do. Every person here you care about. And every person here has a part in the plan for their life. And as they fulfill that plan that you have for them, they will experience joy. And I pray that you would allow them to really see that you care for them and that you need them to do what you want to do. And by doing that, they will be blessed. They will be encouraged and their, their spirit will be lifted up because they realize that the God of the universe is using little old me to do something supernatural. So as we leave today, I pray that you would continue that revival in each one of us, that we walk out of here not just hearing another lecture, Lord, but hearing what the Word of God says to me, to me. Not to everybody, but to me. And I pray that we'd apply the, each one of us that to our lives and we'd come back next week anticipating more great things from your Holy Spirit and from your Word. So Lord, I commit each person to you in Jesus' name. You fill them, you excite them, you anticipate them, you use them for your glory, for the glory of God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Have an awesome week. See you Wednesday for more excitement. <laughs>